Um, earlier this year, we hosted the New South Wales Liberal Treasurer, Dom Perrottet, who addressed one of our leadership lunches. So we thought it was more than appropriate that we would extend an invitation to the leader of the New South Wales Labor opposition, Luke Foley. Now, anyone who knows me knows that I don't follow state politics very closely. Um, so in preparing these remarks, I consulted a friend who's one of the most seasoned observers of Macquarie Street politics. And uh, she told me that Luke Foley's instincts are mainly sound. I say mainly, <laughs> even though he is a mad Sydney Roosters rugby league supporter. And as a South Sydney supporter, I totally agree with that analysis. Um, she also told me he is known for and supported for his intelligence and strategic brain and ability to wrong-foot conservatives. And she reminded me of the Greyhound controversy. Um, you may recall uh, two and a half years ago, early to mid-2016, the then New South Wales Premier Mike Baird, in response to a, an ABC Four Corners expose, decided to put in place a ban on the Greyhound racing industry. And the New South Wales Liberals were strongly supported by the inner city left, the metropolitan sophisticates, the Greens. However, Luke Foley, and we should remember that Luke Foley is from the Labor Party's left faction, Luke Foley subjected the Premier's plan to a lot of scrutiny. He knew the ban would hurt communities in the western suburbs and in remote and regional New South Wales. The right thing to do, he said, would have been to sit down with the stakeholders and work out a reform plan. He supported, quote, a sustainable industry that operates to the highest standards of animal welfare. Well, all of a sudden, Mike, Blair, Mike Baird bled a credibility and authority as if from an open wound. His government then added insult to injury for the state's devastated greyhound owners and trainers by calling them stupid. A senior bureaucrat sent out a creative brief for the government's greyhound advertising campaign in which he claimed they are largely illiterate. Luke Foley said the tone of the documents confirmed the elitism of the Premier and his decision to ban dog racing. And I think in many respects this would have been in the winter of 2016, several months before Hillary Clinton made those remarks about Trump supporters being what? Deplorables. <clears throat> Ultimately, Luke Foley won the fight to save the greyhound industry. What many seasoned observers of Macquarie Street politics believe was his greatest political achievement to date. Writing in Sydney's Daily Telegraph recently, Anna Corwell wrote, quote, Foley should not be underestimated. Part of the problem for the Liberal government is that all of its oxygen has been taken up by the Sydney-centric dramas and Foley has capitalised on every single one of them. Corwell goes on to say, in the past 12 months, the culprits have been carrying on and dithering over light rail, stadiums and the powerhouse museums move west. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming the New South Wales Opposition Leader, Luke Foley.
Right. Well, you know, I, I ran into Tom in the street um, a year or so ago and I said, you see, Tom, there are matters of great principle at stake in state politics. He goes, yeah, Luke, what would that be? Um, <laughs> I said, the right of men and women to race our dogs. Um, look, can I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the, the Gadigal people, and, and pay respect to their elders? Thanks to the CIS for bringing us together today. Um, you are an abstemious crowd bringing us together for lunch on Melbourne Cup Day. Um, <laughs> And I promise I won't run through a Melbourne Cup-sized field of policy promises. So uh, we'll all get out of here well, in, well and truly before the race is run. Um, but can I acknowledge Greg Lindsay for the leadership he provided to this centre for decades, um, but also congratulate uh, the board of the CIS for engaging Tom, who's somebody I've known uh, for many years. He's Liberal, I'm Labor, but uh, we've always got on very well and I think uh, what Tom Switz has done, whether was editing the opinion pages at The Australian or The Spectator Australia or, or now here uh, running the Centre for Independent Studies is make a very significant contribution to public discourse in this country. So it's wonderful to be here. Uh, I am a hit on the dish liquor circuit and um, I mean so you go through life as a state opposition leader and um, you, you battle for recognition, no one, I mean you work so hard and people still don't know who you are but uh, uh, for my sins I have to go to dog tracks for the rest of my political <laughs> life um, and I enjoy it. I, I was um, uh, on the public holiday Monday, the morning after the grand final, I had to get out to Canamble because they, na they name a race after me. Um, <laughs> the thank you, Luke Foley Stakes. And um, $425 first prize. <laughs> the inaugural winner, Lunatic Desley. Um, and um, I mean, seriously, you know, I thought that was a pretty important issue for the state and, and for the Labor Party. Um, it was before, it was before Trump won, and you know, every, you know the the resident budgerigar in every pet shop started talking about the white working class and how we appeal to their affections. Um, but when Baird, when when the Baird government announced the ban five days after the twenty sixteen federal election, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Um, the conventional wisdom at the time, which is what was that Labor would have to give bipartisan support because there was no way a modern Labor Party could stand against uh, something that was so popular with um, urban progressives. Um, I took a different view. I thought, it, I thought the ban was wrong in principle to, to criminalise the pastime of a whole class of our fellow citizens based on the sins of a limited number of that group. So I thought it was wrong in principle. I always thought regulation rather than outlawing the, the sport, the industry was the way to go. But politically, I did see an opportunity. Um, there was a risk internally. Certainly it was debated within the party. Um, 
but you know, you look around the West today in Australia the, um, and elsewhere, you know, your traditional major parties, our Labor Party, our Social Democratic Party and the Liberal National Coalition are both big tents. Uh, and people with um, widely varying interests and priorities um, have aggregated together under those, under those tents for a long period. And that's getting harder and harder. We have the rise of green left parties through the West, the rise of nativist uh, anti-immigration parties. You have the rise here of a um, economically and socially liberal party represented by Senator Leinhelm. Um, you know, there's, there's a much greater menu for people to choose from when it comes to political parties and candidates. Um, and I thought when you look at the Labor constituency, you know, that traditional, that traditional working class uh, constituency, um, many of whose members perhaps um, uh, are more socially conservative than, than progressive, um, that they've had to put up with a lot from us in recent decades, whether it's economic restructuring decisions, tariff reductions, native forest decisions, uh, climate change, carbon tax uh, policies. And I just thought this was one issue, the Greyhound ban, where a Labor Party could be unambiguously on the side of uh, a traditionally socially conservative working class uh, subgroup or constituency. Um, and I think it sent a signal that um, it's not inevitable or automatic um, that today, with the culture wars raging so ferociously, that the Labor Party always has to plonk for um, one side of that culture war. Anyway, um, that's all by way of introduction to try and give you a sense of where I come from as a Labor leader. My my values and perspectives. Um, it is a day to talk about racing. And, um, you know, the first policy I announced actually when I became leader of the Labor Party in 2015 was a big tax cut for the racing codes in New South Wales, um, something that had been resisted by the coalition government at the behest of the state treasury. Um, and so I had to give them, I had to give these libs a lecture on, you know, the economic stimulus that occurs when you actually cut taxes for an industry and uh, so in the end they had to follow me because they couldn't have the labour leader out there promising a big tax cut to a major industry and employer in this state so that's how the racing codes in New South Wales got tax parity with Victoria. Anyway um, you can ask me my tips for the Savo um, in the Q&A session. Um, I thought I'd just touch on three issues in state politics and, and attempt to off the back of those give you a better sense of, of where I come from. Um, can I talk about ports privatisation? I, I said on the day I became Labor leader, um, I don't see a need in this day and age for the government to own ports. But I do see a need for government to regulate what they get up to. They're a, a monopoly asset and in the end, these things need to be regulated in the interests of, of consumers. 
And in an open trading economy like ours, ports hold a you know, highly strategic position. Um, you know, every day all of us handles something that's come into port, come through the, the port of botany, most likely. Um, so their efficient and competitive operations certainly matter. Now, when, when privatisation of, of um, government assets and trading enterprises became a, a popular thing for governments to pursue in the 1980s, that was with a policy goal of lifting productivity and strengthening competition. And I do think uh, the polity here has lost sight of that original purpose. Um, you know, what, what we saw here in New South Wales with the ports privatisation process was an exercise deliberately designed to thwart competition and entrench a private rather than a public monopoly. Um, the government of the state entered into secret deals to entrench uh, Port Botany's monopoly status when it comes to operating a container terminal. It was designed to prevent the Port of Newcastle from ever competing with Botany. Um, and the ultimate goal was just to fatten the pig for market day, to get a higher sales, sale price. Um, and the criticism I made all the way through was I'm, I'm not opposed to um, divesting ports assets, but I'm very much opposed to doing it in a way that entrenches a private mon monopoly and rips consumers off. Um, I mean, understand the deal that was entered into. It would impose a fine of a million dollars a ship if the port of Newcastle ever operates a container terminal. This is a punitive measure against the port of Newcastle. Now, it's the lar largest coal port in the world, but um, we know that the hunter's economy needs to diversify over the decades ahead. Um, and there's a set of ha handcuffs being imposed on our second largest city in New South Wales through such a structured arrangement um, brought to you by your government. Um, and the fines, you know, if, if, port, if the port of Newcastle was ever to go down the road um, of operating a container terminal, it's fined a million dollars a ship that's handled and the fines are paid over to Port Botany. Um, and we were told that you know, this is privatisation and this is good for the economy and you know, why do we don't need big socialist bureaucracies running all these assets that are better operated by the private enterprise. And, but in the end, it was just an exercise to get the maximum possible sale price at the expense of competition, at the expense of productivity, um, and against the interests of consumers. And all this only came to light. I mean, we pursued this in the parliament at Estimates. Only really came to light when a whistleblower came forward um, who, you know, released, leaked some, some documents. Um, so a monopolist, as you know, um, will be free to increase their charges. Um, you couldn't devise a policy that's more anti-consumer. So I'm very glad the ACCC's taking up the case. I um, 
looking forward to their report, um, which ought to come this month. So it's very topical right now. ACCC ought to report back this month, and I hope it's not too late to scrap that deal. And if we come to government in March, uh, we'll be looking at everything. There's still a lot of aspects of what happened that are under lock and key, but we'll be throwing the books open to see what can be done there. And um, I think there's an important lesson here. Um, somewhere along the line, the case for private, for private ownership um, and privatisation in this country, the, the, the argument for it moved a long way from its original foundations, which is about improving productivity in this country and maximising competition and has morphed into simply a grab for cash by governments, often at the expense of consumers. And, uh, you know, um, I lead the Social Democratic Party. There's, there's, there's certain aspects of, of government uh, service delivery that I'll always maintain and my party will always maintain should be delivered by the public sector. But there's other, there's other uh, areas like the, the ownership of ports where I don't think it necessarily has to be owned by government, but it has to be regulated by government in the interests of consumers, uh, in the public interest. Uh, and that's why we'll continue to pursue that one. Um, I want to get to education because of the great work of the, the CIS uh, in this policy area. Um, but, but just let me first say something on transport infrastructure because it's such a perennial topic of conversation in New South Wales politics. And the number one point I want to make to you is if there's a change of government in March, the pipeline of infrastructure activity uh, will not slow. But there'll be different priorities. Uh, now, we're criticised for that by our opponents, but what's the point of having elections unless the people get a chance to vote on the respective policies uh, put forward by their political parties? Um, I think there's a very strong argument that if you have bodies like Infrastructure Australia and Infrastructure New South Wales, you should listen to their advice. Uh, now, w what, what Rudd did and Federal Labor leading up to the 2007 election was commit to a body called Infrastructure Australia. Uh, they brought it into being when they took office. And O'Farrell promised a state version of that prior to the New South Wales Coalition entering government in 2011. Um, and in its infancy, Infrastructure New South Wales was a serious body, um, a robust body. It was chaired by Nick Greiner, a former Premier. Um, its CEO was Paul Broad, um, who today runs Snowy Hydro Corporation. Uh, serious people. Uh, they did serious work considering competing priorities. Now, you know, never get between, um, you know, a politician um, wanting to announce a big transport project um, in the lead up to an election or between elections. So where do you safeguard the public interest here? Um, there needs to be some rigour. And the state infrastructure strategy um, delivered earlier this year uh, by Infrastructure New South Wales had some very clear advice for both sides of state politics. Let me 
let me just quote this briefly to you. This is Infrastructure New South Wales, March 2018. Traditionally, investment has focused on Sydney's east. As major infrastructure networks are completed in the eastern harbour city, such as West Connex and Sydney Metro, investment needs to shift westwards. First to the central river city around Parramatta, and ultimately to the emerging Western Sydney airport and employment centres of the Western Parkland city. The F6 extension and Beaches Link, that's an a Northern Beaches Tunnel. Both need to be weighed carefully against other potential government sector investments. In a constrained fiscal environment, a near-term decision to invest in these new motorway connections serving the Eastern Harbour City may mean deferral of projects elsewhere in Greater Sydney, which may have greater city-shaping impacts. Now that advice has been entirely ignored by the government. Uh, they've, pr they've proceeded to announce a Northern Beaches Tunnel um, and a, a so-called F6 extension, um, both of which are, um, I think you could say, uh, octopus-like tentacles of the, the West Connex, the West Connex Road, which begins with the M4 and M5. Um, now, you know, I'm from Auburn. Um, we're known for our weddings. Um, and, um, <laughs> but, um, I'm the member for Auburn, and um, there we are at the you know, geographic heart of Sydney, and you look at what's going on in Australia's largest cities. 2.2 million people in the greater west of Sydney today. We're hurtling towards a population of 3 million by uh, 2030. And it's the historic underinvestment in transport connections in Sydney's west that I believe must be addressed. Now, um, I'm going to an election saying governments can't do it all here. And notwithstanding the surge of revenues from stamp duty and from asset sales, uh, governments can't do it all when it comes to transport infrastructure pro projects. And hard decisions have to be made. And our priorities are transport infrastructure projects in Sydney's west. Uh, a new western metro rail line between uh, the two CBDs here in Parramatta, which are now, which is now officially the second CBD of the Sydney metropolis, and a rail connection to the Western Sydney Airport after that, um, and that would be the first stage of a north-south rail line in Sydney's west. It's it's the north-south connections in Sydney's west that are really lacking. Um, you know, the M7 road's a good road, uh, but the Public transport connections aren't there, hence the very, very heavy congestion into and out of the Sydney CBD every weekday morning and evening right now. And the big challenge we have to grapple with is that there's a jobs deficit in Sydney's west. It's about 230,000 today. That is, there's around 230,000 more people in Western Sydney who are in the labour market then there are jobs in Western Sydney itself. That's what gives you the congestion. Now, on the, a business as usual approach will get that to 300, 400,000 over the next, uh, 300,000 by the late 2020s, 400,000 uh, by 2036, a business as usual approach. And congestion will drive Australia's largest city or ground us to a halt. Um, so that's why we say the case uh, in a constrained fiscal environment is for, is for investment in Sydney's west. And 
you know, I bring a perspective that I think is in a labour tradition of Neville Rand closing hospital beds in the inner city to open new ones in Western Sydney, of Gough Whitlam focusing on sewerage and other government services in the growing suburbs of Sydney's west and the other, the other big cities of Australia. Um, a suburban agenda for labour. Um, but when, whenever you hear any of us between now and March talking about transport infrastructure projects, I'd urge you to keep in mind that money's finite and priorities need to be spelt out. No political leader or no side should be given a tick for saying we'll do it all. Uh, and we will go to an election saying there'll be no, no slowing down on the priorities, uh, on, sorry, on the overall infrastructure spend, but our priorities are based on where the population growth is and on the advice of the independent body, the independent infrastructure uh, body advising government. Uh, let me talk a little bit about uh, education because, you know, I think any Labor Party worth its salt has to be about opportunity as well as fairness. And the way we lift people up in this country um, and give them opportunities relies so heavily on a an education system that um, opens up those opportunities. Um, I'm the first in my family to go to university. That's a very common story. Um, and, you know, I want to lead a state that provides um, opportunities through preschool, school and post-school education for as many kids as possible from families with modest incomes to have the best, the best shot at leading a rewarding life and doing well. Um, now... We have to step up to meet the challenge of a soaring school-age population. Uh, we need an unprecedented schools building program in this state over the next decade. Uh, I see the Sydney Morning Herald's represented here today. They've done some um, good work in outlining the scope of the challenge um, over the last couple of years. And essentially we need about 270,000 new and additional school places in this state, um, about 85% of those um, in metropolitan Sydney, uh, actually, um, between now and 2030, 2031. Um, I wanna make a couple of points. That, uh, a lot of focus on what government will spend on that and rightly so. Um, there needs to be a big investment, a big lift in government investment. But there also has to be delivery from the non-government sector. And I talk about this all the time. The, the Catholics and independents uh, have to be building new schools too and expanding their existing schools. Uh, so how can we help them? Uh, you know, one idea we put forward is that um, the, the non-government schools authority should be exempted from the infrastructure charges they're currently levelled with by local governments. Now, they're often crippling. You know, I mean, I went to a new Catholic school in Marsden Park and essentially they'd been slugged something like close to half a million dollars by the local council on infrastructure charges. Now... 
No government of the state will be able to afford delivering 270,000 school places over the next 12 years. Uh, we need the non-government schools authorities um, to be delivering basically the proportion they're at now in terms of when you look at school enrolments. I think what's, Dallas, what's non-government school enrolments about 36%? Yeah. Um, so we would hope, um, we would want um, the Catholics and independents to be delivering around 36% of the additional school places through school expansions to their existing schools and uh, new schools. Um, so one idea we have there, which um, um, hasn't been matched by the government, is, is to give non-government schools authorities the same exemption that the public sector currently gets when they build new schools uh, from local government infrastructure charges. Um, now, this will be a big issue, and, and we'll make no apologies to um, running on a theme all the way to Election Day that we won't we won't be spending $2.2 billion of government money on a couple of stadiums when there's greater priorities like building new schools. Um, I was in, this time yesterday, I was in the Tweed committing to a new uh, high school in Pottsville, which is a fast growing area on the Tweed coast where kids don't have a, don't have a school after they leave primary school right now. Uh, the other day, uh, we were in uh, Labor was in Bungendore, my shadow minister uh, in the Southern Tablelands, promising uh, a new high school there. So this will be an issue that um, uh, we'll campaign on all the way to the election. But there's many other many other issues regarding the operation of the the school system as well that we'll talk about. I'm conscious, Tom. I'm I'm running close to time, so I might leave it to questions and answers. Um, but teaching, teaching kids a second language in our primary schools is a particular passion of mine. Uh, we're a long way behind uh, every other state when it comes to primary school uh, students uh, and uh, language studies. Um, but I might leave it at that and very happy to take questions, Tom, and give Melbourne Cup tips. Thank you, thank you very much, uh, Luke. And uh, now it's time for question time. I think we can take a couple, maybe three. And our first question comes from... Here we go. Marco. Marco Belgiorno. Um, Luke, I was delighted to hear about your um, interest about consumers. Um, one topic which I'd like to touch on is energy. Um, the state government had built a lot of power stations as many states had around Australia. And um, one in particular, of course, that's now topical is Liddell, yeah. which is now being considered for closure. Um, base coal power has been an integral part of energy supply in New South Wales, as in Australia. Um, what's your view about the closure of that power station and <coughs> What policies does the party have in relation to investment in new power stations? Thanks. Um, well, let me be a bit provocative. Um, I mean, I shake my head at what's happening um, on the right in this country where, um, you know, I assume it's following Trump. You know, people who've argued for free, the operation of free markets for a very long time are now increasingly arguing for 
government intervention to distort market forces. Um, Liddell's a classic example. Um, I mean, AGL's made a decision. The Liddell's due to close in 2022, and you've got Conservatives in the federal parliament um, and indeed a deputy premier in New South Wales putting forward a view um, that government should force AGL to divest the asset unless they keep it open. I mean, how did a, how did a free market right move to such a position? If a Labor government said that, we'd be accused of communism. Um, now, um, my view is that market forces have a primary role to play when it comes to investment decisions in new energy generation. And around the world, you look at the um, plunging cost of wind and solar in particular, you look at developments in battery storage, it's, it's nigh on impossible to see the private sector um, financing new coal generation capacity in this country. Uh, my view is that we'd be far better off encouraging uh, new energy capacity from renewable sources in New South Wales and perhaps a gas-fired peaking plant, then um, applying some band-aids to a clapped-out Liddell in order to keep it open um, for a handful of more years. And I just bemoan that this is essentially a policy-driven... That, that, that argument to force Liddell to stay open by whatever means necessary is essentially that derives from a culture war, not any sound economic policy, whatever. It's, it's go back to Tony, coal is good for humanity. Um, therefore, government should um, force the private sector to do certain things or give up assets because coal is good and will keep this... Um, asset past its useful life uh, to stay open. That's, that's not a rational economic decision. Next question. David Lowenhill. Um, thanks, Luke. Um, I'm just wondering if you could explain your thinking on the stadiums. Um, my, just to sort of short circuit your response perhaps, my understanding is that they don't meet modern standards. So. Are you opposed to rebuilding them entirely or just opposed to public sector funding of the rebuilding of them? Oh, look, you know, well, I think $2.2 is an extravagance when we need to find 270,000 more school places over the next 10 or 12 years uh, when you have record waiting lists at, at um, many emergency departments in Western Sydney, when you have record waiting lists for elective surgery. I think it's an extravagance... Uh, an indefensible indulgence um, for the government to commit $2.2 billion to those stadiums. I think that, I mean, Gladys's insight, you know, you, I mean, before this decision, kind of every political leader had picked a side in the Sydney Stadium Wars. And it's so Sydney, you know, powerful people in charge of the Olympic venues, powerful people associated with the SCG Trust, people with... Um, megaphones on the radio every morning, um, strongly advocating for 
the Moore Park facilities or the Olympic Park facilities, and we kind of all picked a side. And coincidentally, Baird and I picked the same side, which was West before East. But Gladys's insight was she could pick both sides uh, and say do both. Um, and I think that's gone down very badly with the voters who see, you know, the pressure with population growth that all government services are under. Now, David, in answer to your question, I probably could have lived with some kind of proposal that said um, the SCG Trust will take out a loan from government to build a new facility. It will levy its members over the next, what, five years? Um, and the loan will be paid back to government. I mean, government itself paying all of the freight for uh, new developments on the SCG trust lands is a very recent development. I think actually every all major capital works were met out of the reserves of the SCG trust uh, for well over 100 years until um, state and federal funding uh, was kicked in for the Trumper stand in 2007. Now that's a very recent development and now it's gone to a point where the, the public sector is being asked to pay 100% of the freight and I just think it's over the odds. Okay, I've got time for one more question at least from our board member James Phillips. Thanks Tom. Um, <coughs> the uh, Reserve Bank published a report earlier this year that um, uh, suggested that about $430,000 of the cost of a home in Sydney is attributable to land use restrictions and government regulation. Do you think that provides any opportunity for addressing housing affordability? Yeah, I do, James. I think all of these things need to be looked at all of the time. I, I don't think the decision by the, or the, sorry, the announcement by the State Treasurer yesterday um, um, will do anything seriously to deal with housing affordability. Now, Dom, who I've got, I know you've had him here, Tom. Um, I've got a lot of respect for Dominic. Um, he believes in something. He can argue a case. Um, but, you know, he said yesterday a little bit of nonsense that this <laughs> is the most significant reform in a generation. What, to knock $200 off your stamp duty? Um, <laughs> I mean, the last time he said that was the fire and emergency services levy and it got scrapped a few months later. Um, so when you hear state politicians talk about the most significant reform in a generation, take it with a grain of salt. Um, there's many impediments in the planning system that need to be addressed. I think a lot of it could occur on a bipartisan basis. Um, and I think there's hard decisions that should be taken around social and affordable housing. Um, you know, what, one idea... One idea I put forward uh, early in my leadership was um, you know, a far, far greater role for the non-government sector when it comes to the provision of social housing. Um, I think um, public housing in this state's become an embarrassment and I think, I'm not proposing a wholesale sell-off, but I think a transfer of some of the stock to community housing providers um, who want to do a lot more who need a greater asset base to, you know, go to the banks and leverage loans and the like. But there's a whole lot we can do there to lift both the quantity and quality of social housing provision here. Okay, now I'd like to call on my friend and a long-time supporter of CIS to do the vote of thanks, uh, Dallas McInerney.
Yeah, mate. I'll see you next time. Yeah. Thanks, Tom, and uh, congratulations for again putting on a terrific event in the Leadership Series, which concludes uh, with Luke's address this afternoon. Um, being able to identify uh, people from right across the political spectrum who walk in here uh, not feeling that they're bound by the ideologi ideologies of their party uh, is something of a talent in the CIS, and Luke comes to this uh, this forum, this lectern following uh, the footsteps of some of the better thinkers and the more refined advocates from his own party and some of them were mentioned uh, uh, earlier today. What, you th what I think we heard today is somebody who has a very rational, practical view of the world and uh, when you seek high office at a service delivery level such as the state government, I think that will stand him in good stead. For those of us, uh, and I count most of the people in this room in this category, that like their political leaders to be a little contoured by the vicissitudes of life and a little more textured and multidimensional, uh, then you find that in Luke Foley, uh, who is given great tracks of his professional and adult time uh, to public life, uh, but has maintained an interest and a service and a commitment to interests outside Macquarie Street. Uh, not least of which in community sport, the charitable sector, uh, and in fact in the union movement. He was the president of the National Union of Students, NUS, in 1991. Uh, left them in such good shape uh, and well-resourced that by the time I got to Sydney for the de-affiliation referendum in 1993, we were no chance, uh, and <laughs> NUS uh, trounced us. Notwithstanding that, we managed to win the vote on the main campuses when the satellite campus votes were tallied overall, it was defeated. Um, Luke, uh, I think with uh, many senior politicians, gives a good uh, roadmap as to what they might govern and how they might govern when you look back at what they say in their maiden speech. And when he delivered his maiden speech, he made these comments that the Labor Party draws its moral purpose uh, from the fortunate helping the unfortunate and the strong helping the weak and an obligation to do just that, which of course is uh, in many ways a modern day construction of uh, uh, the injunction in the gospel of his namesake Luke to whom much is given, much is expected. And taking that in totality, having his presentation uh, today, you are, I think, uh, Luke, uh, approximating what Tom Wolf would say, a man in full. Destiny is calling you to your greatest challenge in March. Sir, we wish you well. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, Dallas. That was great, mate. Thank you. Thank Dallas, thank you, and uh, thank you again, Luke Foley. That was much appreciated. I want to just conclude by um, flagging a few forthcoming events. Now, tomorrow uh, marks the midterm elections for the US House and the Senate. That's happening tomorrow afternoon. Um, Time difference means that we at CIS are the first think tank in the world to actually have expert analysis on the midterm elections. So that's tomorrow night at six o'clock. We've got the Australian's foreign editor, Greg Sheridan, here, the former foreign minister, Luke's uh, predecessor by six, I think, <laughs> Bob Carr. He'll be here, along with my friend, uh, April Parmalee, uh, who's in charge of the American Chamber of Commerce here in Australia. And I'll be moderating a discussion on the meaning of the midterm elections for the next two years in American politics and what it means for the world. That's tomorrow night on the 20th of this month, 20th of November. We're launching um, 
a biography on, of all people, Bill McMahon. There's never been a biography of Bill McMahon, but the young author of this book, Patrick Mullins, is a star. And so he'll be having a conversation with the distinguished journalist Paul Kelly here on the 20th of the month. And then two days later, on the 22nd, we're having a great discussion, great debate about the crisis of democracy, not just in this country, but across the Western world. So that's November 22. And then later in the month, uh, Michael Kirby, the former High Court Justice, will be launching our longtime friend, uh, Jeffrey Lehman, who's here in the audience, his new memoirs. They'll be launched by former Justice Kirby later in the month. So we hope to see you then. And in the meantime, eat, drink and be merry and gamble responsibly. Thank you so much.